Since the Taliban takeover in, in August, the women of Afghanistan have been a major focal point for those following the developments there. Young girls and women have been told to stay home from school and university, high-ranking professionals in all types of vocations, including medicine, law, education, and banking, have been told that they're not welcome at their jobs any longer. We've seen reports about female judges whose lives are in danger because the Taliban fighters they once prosecuted are now coming after them for revenge. We talked about a, a female judge whose life, oh, sorry, a female uh, who was involved in Taekwondo who's fearful for her life because they are coming after her. Singers and dancers, all kinds of artists, and then there are the brave women who came out in protest and assured the world that they will continue to protest even in light of persecution. What will be the fate of Afghan women? What will happen to all of this energy? The strong will and determination to not fold under the Taliban. Tonight, I want to welcome to the show a woman who is bravely using her platform to raise awareness about the plight of Afghan women. Welcome to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. Tonight, we welcome Dr. Bahar Jalali, an Afghan-American academic born in Afghanistan. She fled the country as a child after the Soviet invasion. In 2009, she returned to Afghanistan to work at the newly opened American University in Kabul to teach the history of Afghanistan and founded the first gender studies program in the history of the country. She spent almost nine years teaching and working towards women's empowerment in Afghanistan and is currently a visiting associate professor at Loyola University in Maryland. Dr. Jalali is, is the founder of the recently launched online campaign, hashtag Don't Touch My Clothes, which rejects the Taliban's directive to control the way Afghan women dress. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jalali. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. Jalali, you know, I, I obviously, you know, it's tremendous what you're doing in terms of using your platform, your, your career, your vocation is to really raise awareness for women's rights, all kinds of women, but particularly uh, right now, Afghan women. Uh, you are an Afghan woman yourself, so this is obviously something that's very close to your heart and close to your home. Um, what was the, you know, the idea behind launching this campaign? Well, as a historian of Afghanistan, I've been concerned for a long time that our country has been at war for over 43 years. And in that span of time, uh, Afghan identity, Af Afghan cultural, Afghan heritage has really been under assault with so many foreign countries interfering uh, in, in Afghanistan. Um, I myself am a survivor of a Taliban terror attack. I was teaching uh, on August, August of 2016 at the American University of Afghanistan when the Taliban uh, attacked our university. So, uh, you know, what the Taliban are doing in Afghanistan is al it's also very personal for me. It's very personal for all Afghans. Um, but I'm very much concerned about Afghan uh, preserving Afghan heritage because as most people know, the Taliban are, are not culturally Afghan. They were born and raised, vast majority of their foothold born and raised in Pakistan. And what they're trying to introduce, the dress code, uh, is really foreign to Afghan culture. But why, I mean, why um, close? I mean, why is that a symbolic, you know, um, focal point? I mean, of, or symbolic of, of women's freedom? Why was your fixation on clothes? 
Well, because the Taliban have chosen to impose foreign clothing on Afghan women. So uh, the way that we counter their foreign alien garb that they're trying to impose on the women of Afghanistan uh, is by uh, countering that with uh, traditional uh, Afghan clothing. So to me, it seemed like a very natural uh, response to what the Taliban are trying to do is preventing Afghan women from uh, wearing their uh, traditional uh, clothing. Yeah, for those who, who might not know, um, the, the Taliban came in and, and want women to dress in black to cover themselves from head to toe. Um, there was a group of young girls, for example, walking and uh, the, the morality police stopped them and started whipping one of them because her toes were showing in her sandals. So this is the extreme the extreme extent to which they are enforcing this new dress code. And for those who are not familiar with your campaign, uh, you tweeted a picture of yourself in a beautiful, beautiful uh, green dress. This is, uh, you know, Afghan traditional clothing. Uh, and you tweeted, this is Afghan culture. I'm wearing a traditional Afghan dress. Hashtag Af Afghanistan culture. Simple enough, um, visual enough, right? And obviously it went, it went viral. 24,000 likes and um, soon women across the world started sharing photos of themselves, right, in their own Afghan traditional uh, clothing with the hashtag, do not touch my clothes. Um, did you expect this to go as viral as it did? I mean, what was your reaction to the campaign? Well, I felt very strongly about it, and it was around 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on September 11th, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I was just very moved seeing those so-called pro-Taliban women wearing the all-black uh, enveloping garments, face covered, head covered, and uh, gloves, something I had never seen before, and I was deeply concerned that I didn't want the world to think that that's Afghan culture. So when I uploaded my photo and made a, a, an appeal for Afghan to Afghan women worldwide to do the same, I never expected the response to be this overwhelming. But I'm very pleased, and I think that we have succeeded in shifting the focus from those uh, foreign garb that the Taliban have imposed on Afghan women and really uh, capturing the world's uh, attention with what Afghan Afghan traditional clothing looks like. Yeah, I mean, you, you've done a tremendous job at bringing people's, um, at, at least to show, right, to say this is not the narrative. They've they've taken, you know, what what is ours and um, are, are totally hijacking it to something else. Speaking of um, world reaction, you know, the Taliban came in and promised to they they are going to be reformed and there's a new and improved, right? We're not going to be the Taliban of the 90s. We're going to give women more rights. Uh, we're going to be different. And of course, from day one, right? Women told, stay, told to stay home. Um, women told to stay home from their jobs, from schools, from universities. And it seems like they're even worse than they ever were before. What they are new and improved in is perhaps their PR machine is quite sophisticated. They're able to, to use these Western social media platforms uh, and they're allowed to be on these platforms, even though they're, they're a terrorist entity. Um, which is a discussion for a different day. But um, is the is the West buying their PR efforts? I mean, is is it is it something that concerns you where you're saying this is the right, this is the truth, and this is what the Taliban is telling them? Are they buying it? Well, I don't know if they're buying it, but one thing I do see happening is that I do see 
efforts to sort of normalize the Taliban. Uh, yesterday, I read an article where the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was saying, well, you know something? This is what the Taliban have to do for us to start engaging with them as a so-called uh, Afghan government. And I would, and I interpreted that as really, uh, you know, uh, something along the lines of normalizing the Taliban. So I have seen people, uh, uh, you know, Afghan and non-Afghan alike, trying to normalize the Taliban by, you know, uh, really downplaying and whitewashing uh, a lot of the things that they're doing. So that concerns me very, very much, which is why uh, our campaign will continue. We will expand beyond social media because, uh, you know, Taliban 2.0, as you mentioned, uh, is uh, not only just the same, but far worse. Uh, and it's very alarming to see people uh, try to normalize uh, who they are. Yeah, I mean, at least McCraw had some uh, conditions uh, the UK leader w went and, and met with the Taliban today, and I'm sure the White House will, will follow. And the UN was considering giving them a seat uh, at the General Assembly this year. So it looks like their efforts to normalize um, will be accepted around the world. Uh, why do you think that is? Why is there, and why was there, I should say, um, not so much an eagerness to curb the Taliban on the way out, but now that the Taliban is in power, there's an eagerness to normalize them, to accept them, to embrace them. Well, let's not well let's not forget that the United States and the international community have abandoned Afghanistan to, to the Taliban. So uh, a lot of you know the fact that the Taliban are in power right now to begin with is very much uh, you know this is on. The, the West, right? The United States uh, uh, for abandoning something that he said they would never do again, but they have abandoned Afghanistan to terrorists. Uh, uh, you know, other uh, Western countries, uh, you know, have basically followed suit. So, uh, you know, the way that I see it is you know, the reason why the efforts are being made to so-called engage with the Taliban and try to work with them and hence normalize them is because the, the very reason they are in power today is very much uh, because of it's it, it was was basically the, our country was delivered to them uh, uh, by the international community, mainly the United States. Yeah, we, I mean, that's what we've been reporting here at the Foreign Desk as well, that they handed Afghanistan over on a silver platter. And perhaps that is the um, the lens by which we study and we, we know the, the, the Middle East uh, and how these terror elements are waiting to take over. And in Afghanistan, you know, the story that's being sold to the public from day one is twofold. A, what other choice did we have? We would have stayed there forever. So we had to eventually leave. And B, that this was a, a President Trump era policy, which is bogus. Not, it is not an argument for or against Donald Trump. It's bogus because this White House, the Biden White House, didn't follow any of, of Trump's other policies. So why now this one, right? Um, and if we want to really get into the nitty gritty, Donald Trump had checks and balances in place to disarm the Taliban in certain ways. Um, and even back then, I, did, I wasn't in favor of, of, of uh, trying to disarm or defang the Taliban, because as you and I both know, it's impossible to change these terror organizations. But coming back to the original um, question, was this outcome inevitable? Absolutely I mean, not. 
Absolutely not. Uh, Joe Biden did not listen to his own national security team. He was uh, warned by Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Miley, to, ple to please keep this light force of 2,500 troops. And this was not a fighting force. They were there to train, uh, uh, you know, train, uh, advise, and provide intelligence. And that light force would have kept the Taliban at bay. Uh, something else that could have occurred, which and this is on the, this is on, um, on the uh, former Afghan government, was that they could have established an interim government, uh, uh, and that would have prevented the Taliban from taking power, you know, uh, exclusively. So there were many other scenarios, and uh, you know, the the withdrawal and the way it happened was just so unnecessary. Uh, but the uh, you know the the outcome has been catastrophic. Now you're you're in a, in a university setting. How many of your colleagues share your opinion about this withdrawal and are vocal about it? Well, I'm very new to Loyola University of Maryland, and it's a wonderful atmosphere. Uh, I am working with you know top uh, intellectuals uh, and experts, and I will be teaching a class on Afghanistan in the spring semester. Wonderful. So I will look forward to engaging more with them uh, in, the, in in the months ahead. Yeah. Um, the reason I ask that is because, you know, we have Afghan women here coming out and telling us, you know, we, we won't back down. We're going to come out onto the streets. And, you know, um, something similar happened with the, the Iranian protesters who said, we, we need you guys. We need the West to step up and speak out and to advocate for us. Right. We can't do it alone. And obviously, as the, um, you know, as, as, as the protests become more visible, obviously, the squashing of the protests will become, uh, obviously, much more brutal. Uh, we've, we know this from, from, from history. Um, you know, what, why do we see such silence from Western groups when we see the marginalization of gays and um, writers and journalists and women? Why, do, why aren't more people speaking out about this? I think that at this point in time, it's no longer politically expedient. Uh, you have to recall in 2001, saving Afghan women from the Taliban was a major ideological plank of the uh, of the global war on terror to mobilize support in the United States and the UK, uh, in, in the West. Uh, and, you know, now, of course, it's, it's no longer politically expedient. You know, we were all really surprised to see, uh, you know, female members of Congress, especially the younger ones, the squad, they were all silent uh, when the Taliban, you know, just, you know, uh, bulldozed into power uh, and immediately curtailed women's rights. All of the progress that was made in the past 20 years. And there was progress because I was there uh, and I was part of it. So, uh, you know, it's just not politically expedient anymore the way it mm -hmm. was 20 years ago. Afghan women were used uh, as propaganda for the global war on terror and they're no longer needed. Uh, and they've been abandoned. Yeah, I, I want to give you a big hug over the, the computer right now, because as an Iranian woman, I feel the same way. You know, you have these women who come and are freshmen, um, you know, um, representatives. They have such a, a, a tremendous platform that they don't even deserve. Uh, and yet they only use it to their for their own hatred and to spew their own garbage. But they never speak out about, you know, the, the women of Iran or Afghanistan or the ones who are truly suffering. But I guess the the silver lining to all of this is that the women of Afghanistan are 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 woke to this, right? They are, uh, to use their own words, they're woke to this. Meaning they see they see who is helping and who is not, and they know that they have to take things into their own hands. What will come of them when they say they won't back down? I mean, how is this going to end? 
Well, we have to remember that Afghanistan today is a different country than it was 20 years ago. And in the past 20 years, we have seen progress. Uh, women, Afghan women are not only more uh, aware uh, of their rights, uh, but they've actually worked uh, in, in very high capacities. Uh, and uh, they've tasted, you know, empowerment, uh, uh, you know, progress, and they're not going to give it up so easily. Something else to consider is that the Taliban themselves are heavily divided. Uh, it's going to be much more difficult for them to kind of impose and rule with an iron fist like they did in the 1990s, because they're ultimately dealing with a different country. And we've seen evidence of that uh, Afghan women risking life and limb to protest, uh, you know, in, in you know, being confronted with, with the Taliban. So it's going to be very interesting to see. And I really don't see a repeat of the 1990s for them to just come in, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, uh, do whatever they want to. Uh, and I also see the Taliban, you know, uh, internally a lot more fragmented. You know, I actually, I wanted to ask you, you were there from 2009 to 2016. So it was during this 20 year, you know, um, better better years as as we say but you said you 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 still um you, you actually went through an attack yourself at the university can you i mean including this attack i want you to talk talk about that as well but could you paint a picture for us characterize what was the country like what was the influence of the taliban like uh how much power did the president have and then um of course tell us about the attack well, in 2009, when I first arrived, uh, returned to my birth country after so many, uh, you know, uh, years away, um, 2009, there was a lot of hope. 2009 was the year of when uh, President Obama's search took place. Kabul was, you know, buzzing with hope and, uh, you know, uh, about the future. So, uh, you know, that year just seems like, a, you know, an eternity ago. Um, uh, and, you know, nobody ever dreamed that the Taliban would come back. Nobody ever thought that the U.S. and the international community would abandon Afghanistan in the manner that they had. Um, of course, the government's uh, control over the entire country, meaning uh, controlling the territory, protecting the population, delivering services, all of those basic functions of a government uh, were not, did not encompass the entire country. Uh, but that was a very, very different time. There was a sense amongst the Afghan population that the, Af the international community was with them and will remain with them. And then after 2014, when the combat operations ended and you had resolute support, you had more of like, you know, international forces there, but more of in a training capacity. You had more, you had the contractors come in. Uh, I would say the mood shifted a little bit. Um, and, you know, there were economic problems, uh, but still everybody was praying and hoping that, you know, things would the status quo would remain. And then in 2016, in August of 2016, uh, on the evening of that day, um, I was teaching uh, in a building that would end up becoming the epicenter of a Taliban attack. There was a suicide bombing, and then the Taliban terrorists infiltrated our campus. And I was able to escape in the early moments of the attack, but I lost several students uh, and a colleague who was teaching on a floor uh, above mine. So uh, that attack, of course, was extremely traumatic, and the university uh, had to kind of... Uh, uh, resort to online teaching for a semester and rebuild. So I went through a lot in Afghanistan, and I would say that um, there was a, a rapid shift from a time of hope, uh, you know, in the 2009 to 2014. That from 2014, I would say it was a gradual, uh, gradual um, decline in terms of security, uh, and uh, you know, international community began to lose uh, lose interest. 
Yeah, it seems it seems that way, right? When people you know characterize the last twenty years, um, there there still were attacks almost daily. I, I would report on them, whether there were casualties or not. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't all peachy uh, at all. The Taliban did have this this kind of control, um, this shadow, I would say, right over over the the people, uh, particularly in in Kabul. You know. Um, you have you have such a force in Afghanistan, as you said. I mean, the, the the women particularly are so educated, and you know, imagine being a judge or a surgeon or an astronaut or whatever, and being told that you can't work any longer. You've dedicated your whole life to your studies, and and you have to stay home. You can't even go to a doctor's appointment without a male escort. And here you are with a PhD or an MD or a JD or whatever it is. Women who have worked so extremely hard. Um, how can these women? continue um, fighting for what they believe in uh, and perhaps take advantage of the splintering within the Taliban that you speak of? Well, even in the 1990s, when women were barred from employment, from education, from having any kind of, uh, uh, you know, a role in the public sphere, you had underground schools, you had uh, women, you know, uh, uh, continue to exert influence in all kinds of ways. So Afghan women have always endured under very, you know, excruciating circumstances. And this is not going to be any different. Actually, what I see happening this time around is that they're going to make it a lot harder on the Taliban to really just kind of impose their very extreme extremist ideology. I will not even call it Islam because it's not. Um, uh, I think that Afghan women will continue to, uh, you know, endure the way they did before. But what I see happening differently this time is I'm, I see a lot more open resistance. And I think that gradually that open, that, you know, really, really, um, uh, you know, vital resistance is going to force the Taliban uh, to really reckon with it. Already uh, today, you know, there was reports that in, in a northern province, although there's a ban on second, girls going to secondary school in one particular uh, district of a northern province, there are the, the secondary uh, female students are returning to school. Uh, and of course, the Taliban this time around want international recognition. I hope that never happens. But uh, the Taliban are, uh, you know, dealing with another, with a different country. Afghan women will continue to uh, push for their rights. Uh, they will continue to exert influence inside the home. And this time around, I see them, uh, you know, uh, not being, uh, um, you know, they're not afraid to go out onto the streets and demand their rights. And they've been doing that. Uh, so, you know, uh, a bit of the old, which is they've always endured. And of course, the new, the, the, the new Afghanistan, the new women who are going out into the streets resisting. Uh, and I think that this time they're going to continue to advocate for that. Uh, until they regain their rights, until those rights are restored. You know what's what's the truth behind how how do the Taliban uh, how do they feel? Are they confident about where they're at? And I'll, this is why I ask. We see so many reports about uh, the Taliban, uh, in, you know, inheriting almost a bankrupt uh, Afghanistan. The banks were closed. Uh, the central banking system, obviously, they're not paying their electricity, so that that's on the brink of of being lost. Um, we talk about international recognition, but then, you know, if the West doesn't come to their aid, we know that China, Qatar, and Iran are, are there, right, to to provide them with whatever they need. Um, how how what what's how are they positioned? How would you characterize how they're feeling? What the truth is, and um, you know how how we can take advantage of any weakness or vulnerability there. 
Well, I mean, I think that when, you, when you're dealing with the Taliban, you have to go to the root of the problem. And the root of the Taliban problem does not lie in Afghanistan. It lies in Pakistan, right? Um, you know, uh, very credi credible reports have, uh, have taught us that, you know, uh, uh, you know, have informed us that the Taliban were from the very beginning a, a project of Pakistani military intelligence. And one of the main reasons why they have reemerged uh, so strongly, uh, um, so rapidly is because, you know, Pakistan continues to uh, sponsor them. Uh, and, and, and until Pakistan is sanctioned, uh, this, the Taliban are not going to, the, the Taliban problem is not going to end. Um, and, you know, of course, Pakistan is a, is a very close ally of China. So the, pa the, the Taliban see strong support from Pakistan uh, and Pakistan being a strong ally of China, they have that, they feel confident in that. Uh, um, but, and of course now uh, th what they're seeing is that the international community is is kind of lukewarm about all their atrocities, right? Almost trying to normalize them. But, but uh, all of that doesn't really matter because internally they're so, so divided and fragmented and it's going to be very, very difficult for them to form a really strong, viable government amidst all that fragmentation. On top of that, they're trying to impose their will on a country that doesn't want them. Right. right? Ultimately, they want to govern Afghanistan. That's the country they want to uh, be the government of. And, it's right. a, and they've been imposed. They've been imposed on the people. The Afghan people are uh, have been transformed in 20 years. So right. right now, I would say it remains a pretty fragile situation on the ground. So what are, what are the options then? You know, what are the options? You're looking, I'm sure, you know, they look over at the Iranian people and they're like, they had the same thing from 40 years ago, 42 years ago. They didn't want this. And look where they are now. We don't want to be, you know, 42 years into this and still in perpetual protest mode. We want to get what what other options are left for the Afghan people? Well, uh, I mean, I think that uh, uh, the Taliban are not an option, uh, uh, even if even if these conditions, so-called conditions are met. Uh, you know, Western governments telling the Taliban that you have to meet this condition, that condition. It seems to me that when they talk that way, they don't seem to understand who the Taliban are, right? You trying to impose these conditions on them. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, a solution could be that, you know, uh, um, they could, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, support the international community could support the uh, introduction of an interim government. Uh, you know, and, and this that was the plan under, uh, you know, uh, when the former Afghan government was in power that, you know, President Ghani was told several times by the U.S. government, by Secretary Blinken, uh, by President Biden, uh, by so many other people that you need to be have a more inclusive government. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if that plan that of having an interim government uh, uh, be, get established or become established, it could have perhaps incorporated some of the so-called more moderate Taliban, uh, you know, uh, that would have been a very a viable option. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think that would have been been, been acceptable. Uh, but the problem was, was that the, the former Afghan government was basically a kleptocracy. It was very isolated. Uh, you know, uh, the former president did not really give an opportunity for technocrats and for capable people to govern, um, to join the government. So right now, uh, I would say I would say that would be the most viable option is to really try to uh, uh, the international community push for a broad based uh, interim government uh, that would include, uh, you know, uh, multiple uh, of, uh, Afghan political groups. 
and uh, you know enforce that on the Taliban, right? And you know, uh, uh, not you know, maybe they could find some you know some more moderate voices within the Taliban uh, and incorporate them too. But that's what I would see. That that would have been the ideal situation, and that was actually um, supposed to happen before the former government fell. And, and, and that didn't happen. And so the Taliban basically got this uh, window of opportunity uh, to come and just take uh, power unilaterally. Would things have been any different if President Ghani had not uh, left the country? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, President Ghani uh, uh, should have stayed. And more importantly, not only stayed, but months before, you know, months and months before, he should have accepted the proposal to have an interim government. And it could have included, you know, people from his own group. Mm -hmm. And so he really, really squandered uh, a very important opportunity. And that gave the uh, Taliban an opening. So one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons why people say, well, you know, the Taliban, hey, they're not so people who want to normalize the people who I will never agree with is because look at the former government. There was warlords. It was a kleptocracy. Mm -hmm. It was completely isolated. Right. So it was all or nothing. And then now it's nothing. So they, they lost. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, it's extremely uh, interesting that all of this fell so quickly. Right. Um, you know, what we were working towards, you know, reducing terrorism in Afghanistan. And then we got to a place where it's it was totally you know taken over by by terrorists. You know, what what will you continue um what message, I should say, are you continuing to tell the world? I mean, what is it that you're striving to do? Uh, what I'm trying to tell the world is the Taliban does not represent the will of the Afghan people. The Taliban are not Afghans, period. The Taliban are foreigners. They're foreign invaders. They're foreign occupiers. Uh, they don't represent Afghan culture, Afghan identity. Uh, what's happened in Afghanistan with the Taliban takeover of power is not a civil conflict. As President Biden has mentioned, it is a Pakistani invasion of our country, plain and simple. And we are trying to take our country back. Uh, And uh, so it's very important that the Taliban are never seen as an Afghan insurgent group because that's not who they are. They were born, bred, raised, trained, supported and nurtured in Pakistan. Uh, And Pakistan wants to impose uh, the uh, Taliban on the Afghan people because of their long long-held desire to make Afghanistan a client state. And what I'm trying to do is keep the Afghan heritage alive, keep the Afghan identity alive, and remind the world day in and day out that the Taliban uh, are foreign uh, foreign occupiers. Are you in touch with um, a good number of women on the ground in Afghanistan? Absolutely. I talked to uh, I talked to uh, people, uh, my, my former students, some of whom are still stuck, need to be evacuated, have been abandoned. Uh, I talked to my relatives. I talked to my friends. Uh, and many of the women that I talked to say they're afraid to leave their homes. They yeah. say that even if the Taliban allows them to go to school tomorrow, they don't trust the Taliban. They're afraid of what might happen if they leave their homes. So they feel like, you know, they've been deprived of living their lives. Uh, and it's a very, very desperate situation. There's no law and order. There are random searches of homes at night. Uh, the Taliban, the Taliban even went and tried to occupy my house in in Kabul. Wow. Uh, so it's a very desperate situation, and it's 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 so much worse than how than what's written in the papers. Wow. I mean, it's tremendous. And for those who haven't seen the reports, the the Taliban have come and said, it's not that we don't want women in school and women at work. It's just that our fighters aren't trained to deal and respect women. And that's why. I mean, they try to come fix it with an excuse. And the excuse is just 
horrific, right? So of course Absolutely. women are scared. Yes, yes, they want you know complete gender apartheid. Uh, but it's also important to remember that the Taliban, as I said before, were born and raised in those Pakistani madrasas where you had very strict gender segregation. And that's completely foreign to Afghan culture. I'm a scholar of 1960s Afghanistan. In the 1960s, we, have, we had an Afghan-led democracy, a democratization, and the women entered parliament for the first time in, the, in 1965. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, our country has really, uh, you know, um, seen all the progress that was made under under the Afghans themselves be reversed uh, and have had, you know, all of these foreign regimes, uh, of, you know, of foreign countries come and uh, contribute to that. Right. Right. To talk about women in government in 1965 and now 2021, you have no women, uh, obviously, in government and no women on the streets, frankly. That's what they want. Um, you know, what what can actually be done? I know that a lot of people aren't paying attention and obviously you're trying to change that. We hopefully are trying to keep the headlines going at the foreign desk as well. But for those who are listening or will start to listen, what do we what's the ask? What do we want them to do? What can be done? I want people to put pressure on their governments to not recognize the Taliban. I want people to uh, write letters to their uh, members of Congress, to their senators, uh, to uh, to not only uh, on behalf of the Afghan people, but all of the sacrifices and blood and treasure that was made by the United States, by uh, our by, by you know uh, the, the coalition forces, the NATO troops, all of those other countries that contributed for so long, their efforts should not be in vain, right? Uh, uh, there were so many actors who contributed to the war in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that to kind of, you know, uh, have this attitude where the Taliban are, in, are an in, inevitable government of Afghanistan and there's no alternative would really be to uh, enter, not only enter a dark period, but, but really to kind of, uh, you know, um, turn our backs uh, and really, really, uh, really, uh, you know, um, uh, do a great disservice and it would, uh, to all of those uh, uh, people who died, uh, who gave their lives, uh, who were injured, uh, who spent so many, uh, so many of years of their life working in Afghanistan. And that's what I want people to do all over the world: is to not lose focus on Afghanistan and to apply maximum pressure on their governments. That the people of Afghanistan do not deserve a Taliban regime. Uh, if the Taliban stay in power, it's highly likely that Afghanistan will remain. Uh, will be the only country in the world where girls are banned from getting an education. And that's not something that anybody should want or accept uh, as the new normal. No, it's unacceptable. And it's something that we have to stop before it goes any further. Thank you for everything that you're doing. I, I encourage people to follow you on, on Twitter and social media. I know you're active on Twitter. So that's why I invite people to, to see you there. But I know that you've created such a ripple effect uh, in the West, in the media. I heard about your, I mean, read about your campaign today in Vogue magazine of all places. So Places where you know the, the 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 Western media has ignored the plight of Afghan women and, and the plight of Afghanistan in general are waking up to the story and 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 
mostly because of you and people like you who are brave enough to bring attention to it, to have a creative campaign that visually brings attention to uh, the plight of the women and what they're going through. And I encourage people to follow these stories and don't let them die out. Um, really, we, we owe it to the Afghan people. We owe it to women. We owe it to children that want to go to school and learn. And uh, thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for shining light on this very, very important story. And we hope to invite you back to give us some good news about the people of Afghanistan. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Have a good evening. And to all of you at home who'd like to subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Deftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10 email to come into your inbox every morning, go to foreigndesknews.com and you can subscribe there. See you all next week.